This morning, uh, I'm also very excited that we're going to have our very first Vox intern speak with us. Uh, David Wallace, uh, who's a student uh, at Austin Presbyterian Seminary, uh, he reached out earlier this past year just to see if there was an opportunity to do an internship with us as part of his seminary requirement. And we've never done one before, um, but our leadership team uh, felt this was a meaningful opportunity and he was willing uh, to try this experiment with us. And so we're very grateful he's going to be a part-time intern for this fall semester uh, as well as the spring semester next year. Uh, and he and his wife, Anna, are going to be part of our community and we're looking forward uh, to getting to know them uh, better. So we're excited that David's going to be opening up the scriptures with us this morning. So welcome, David. Well, good morning, everybody. As Waylon had indicated, uh, I am so grateful for the opportunity to be the first ministry intern, whatever that looks like, at Vox Vignet. And it's allowing me an opportunity to be formed and to learn from all of you. And I'm so appreciative of that. And I'm grateful to be here this morning. So let me open this morning with a question for all of us to ponder before we move on to today's gospel. How important is belonging to us? How important is belonging to us? It has been suggested that it is vital for the growth of human beings. Belonging provides a sense of identity, validation, and acceptance. It's also part of the human condition. Perhaps you might recall Maslow's hierarchy of needs from high school or college early uh, psychology classes. The initial basic needs of a person are what he referred to as physiological needs, the needs for air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction. Second on his list is what he refers to as safety needs after physiological needs are met, and those include personal security, employment, access to resources, health, property. After one's physiological and safety needs are met, a person then seeks love and belonging. This includes personal intimacy, friendship, family, a sense of connection. As I reflected on this idea of the importance of belonging to all of us, I wanted to share a short story with you. I am soon to be married in three days from today to my wife, Anna, for nine years. We are a blended family, of which I have two children from my first marriage, Aaron and Shannon, and Anna has two children from her first marriage, Emily and John. We were gathered at dinner one night about nine years ago, early in the school year, just about like this time. Probably worth mentioning before I continue with the story is that I grew up outside of Philadelphia and I was indoctrinated into the fanaticism of Philadelphia sports. Just as that curse was passed on to me by my father, I too, fortunately or unfortunately, passed it on to my stepson. He became a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. He was so excited to get his first Eagles jersey to wear proudly to school early in the first weeks of that year. I believe he was beginning the fourth grade, maybe. Well, this innocent young boy 
led by his enthusiasm for the Eagles, shuffled off to school proudly displaying his green Eagles jersey. Later that night at dinner, I noticed that the T-shirt that he wore underneath his jersey was now on top of his jersey. And I recall asking him, I said, hey, John, why is your shirt over your jersey? He looked down at his plate, and then when he raised his eyes, there were tears. He said, my friends teased me, telling me that the Eagles stink and that they're losers. What John had yet to experience in his life before that was a feeling of being othered by his classmates and his friends. Here in Texas, there are many Dallas Cowboy fans, right? And rightfully so. The Eagles and Cowboys are bitter rivals. But John was put down, cast out, leaving his need for belonging unmet. I think we probably all have a story like this, right? One where our need to belong is either validated by being accepted or disavowed if we feel outcasted. What I ask us to consider from this story are times when we feel like we don't belong and times when our need to belong might create a sense of specialness or superiority and leads us to behave in ways that are not so loving. As we heard in this morning's scripture, we'll be exploring Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 50. But as a backdrop before we begin, the opening of chapter 9 in Mark is the scene of Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to join him privately up the mountain. That's key to the question of belonging. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus can appear frustrated that his disciples don't understand. So imagine here that among this already selected group of apostles, there are further selected three more to join him. Can we imagine the specialness that they must have felt being handpicked from that group of 12? Do any of us remember a time in childhood when we had a group of friends to play, say, basketball or kickball or some other game? There were always two captains, right? And they were stand there. And then there was the group of the pool of players that were there. And the captains would handpick each person one by one. Well, the best players were always selected first, every single time. I was never a first one selected. Imagine also if there were extra people that were left out, that were not even selected to the team. Can we just take a moment to feel that feeling, the feeling of not even being picked, let alone last? It reminded me, there's a funny commercial out right now. It's for Capital One Bank, and it's, their theme is it's the easiest decision in the history of decisions. And there, there's a basketball pickup game on a school playground, and the, the two little captains are there, and there's this, the group of players to be selected. And in that group of little people is six foot seven, 320-pound former professional basketball player Charles Barkley. I mean, it just he stands out. I think there's a slide that's being put up. So, of course, the, the first captain chooses Charles, and he points down at the little one next to him, and he says, see, I told you, I still got it. 
It's a really funny commercial, right? But the point is made. We do feel better to be in the in-group, and it forms much of our identity. And conversely, to be othered into the out-group has a debilitating effect. So later in chapter 9, right before our verses for today, in verse 30, Jesus and the disciples arrive in Capernaum. And Jesus asked them, he's like, hey, what were you all arguing about along the way? They remained silent, embarrassed. They wouldn't even answer because they were reflecting on the fact that they were arguing about who was greatest among them. There was a feeling of specialness to be part of his intimate group, which led to behavior and attitudes of better than and subsequently lesser than within this special group. So in verse 38, John points out to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not with us. There are a couple of interesting ideas to consider here. First, John was actually the person mentioned that mentioned that comment to Jesus, the same John that was one of the select three that got to join him up the mountain previously in chapter 9. And second, John pointed out that the person was not with us, not following us. He didn't say not with you, not following you. There is clearly a competitiveness with John and others regarding that outsider. Why the envy and judgment toward him? Couldn't John and the others recognize that they were already special just by being human and need not compare and contrast? Evidently not. Since the dawn of humanity, civilizations have built systems that create those that are in and by default, leaving others out. Jesus took this as a teaching moment like he had done so many times before. Jesus, using the more barbaric language of the time, was very direct with his disciples. In verse, 30, in verse 42, he tells them, If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Ah, that's a heavy one, right? If that response didn't get their attention enough, he goes on in verse 43, 45, and 47 to suggest that if one's hand, foot, or eyes causes us to stumble, that we should cut them off or tear them out? It would be better to be maimed, lame, or have one eye and enter the kingdom of God versus being thrown into hell and the unquenchable fire. Strong language. Was Jesus really telling us that if we stumble, we should put a millstone around our necks and be tossed into the sea, cut off a hand or foot, gouge out our eye? I really don't think so. He was a master at using the language to bring home the subtler point. Jesus uses the symbol of a child in a few of his teachings and did so in verses just previous to today's scripture in referring to the notion of putting a stumbling block before a little one. That little one, that child, represents the innate goodness and innocence in all of us. 
It's that essence that we were born with. This is part of what our spiritual teachers refer to as our true self. Our inner child, our true self, is made in the image of God, right? That means we are perfect from the beginning in terms of God's perfection. But God's perfection is not society's version. As we grow, we develop our personalities around our true selves that become the way we interact with the world and offer the world our unique talents and gifts that God granted to each of us. But our life experiences can and often do alter that idea of being God's perfection, often without us even recognizing it. We don't realize that culture, ethnicity, education, parental passed-on belief systems, religious belief systems, systemic structures, peer pressure, personal unmet expectations, life challenges, and traumas affect our understanding of our true selves. If we experience feeling better than at times by our looks or athleticism, our intelligence, popularity, net worth, they might lead to an overinflation of who we really are. And for those of us who have experienced being othered and left to feel less than, it can lead us to unconscious feelings of undervaluation. Perhaps many of us have felt into both sides at different times in our lives. What if Jesus was referring to the false aspects of our personalities, those that are unconsciously overinflated or feel undervalued when he says, if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones? You meaning those aspects that aren't real. What if he was trying to share with us that we have the ability to choose heaven in this moment by recognizing those parts of our personalities that are not God-given? and lead us to unhealthy and hurtful behaviors that many refer to as sin. Feel into that for a minute. The Greek word for repent is metanoia. And unlike the misrepresented idea of repenting for our sins that is used today with this idea of confessing our brokenness and our wretchedness, the word metanoia actually means to change one's mind, to turn around. What Jesus was teaching his disciples that they can change their minds about who and what they were. And by following him and his example, that they could know union with the living God as he did. What if Jesus was saying that they could see where their false selves, referred to as hands, feet, or eyes, could be uncritically observed, recognized, let go of, dismembered from our true selves in each moment, cutting them off? to avoid that internal hell that we can find ourselves in. That can often look like jealousy or envy, anger, cynicism, distrust, narcissism, disillusionment, worthlessness, despair, greed, selfishness, and the list is endless, right? 
Finally, in verse 49 and 50, Jesus tells them, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Biblically, the words salt and fire are connotations for purification, preservation, covenant. Jesus is explaining that our saltiness, which is our worthiness, our uniqueness, and our gifts will show themselves in the fire of our lives. Think about raw iron being forged into steel in fire. The impurities are removed and the steel is hardened. The events of our lives will undoubtedly provide us heat, right? Most often when we least expect it, and certainly not because we desire it, right? They will challenge us in moments of heaven and hell continually. But the heat of life, but through the heat of life, we become salted, purified, and preserved. Our true selves are protected and brought out for the world to see, and potentially all that is not our true selves will be purified away. Let's think about some times when we felt better then at the expense of another person or group, like John did in this scripture in referring to that person that was healing people that was not with his group. Let's also think about these times when we were part of that group that was not invited up the mountain with Jesus or were excluded because we were from the wrong side of the neighborhood, rooted for the wrong team, were vaccinated or unvaccinated or held different views from those in the other group. Does that make us less than? Of course not. But our minds convince us of this, right? I'd like to share a quick story with you. I was 23. I was fresh out of college, 23, 24 maybe. And I worked for a company back then that did page composition, page assembly before desktop publishing that we have now. They put together pages of text typesetting and images for college and medical publishing school textbooks. And I was calling on a major medical publisher in Philadelphia. It was my first real sort of professional salesperson job. I was so excited. One particular buyer that I was calling on would not see me. Time and time again, I called. There was not really sort of email options then, um, dating myself, I think. But I would call him, and he would not reply. So I just kind of moved on and kept calling on other people. And then seemingly out of the blue, he called me. And he said, hey, David, you know what? I've got this big pathology medical textbook that's coming up for a revision, new edition. Come on over and pick up the copy of the old one and, and have your company give us a bid on it. I was ecstatic. I'm sure I broke all speed records to get over to the publisher that day. My biggest opportunity by a large margin. The estimates themselves were very complicated to put together. There was an estimator at our company that would spend probably about a week's worth of her time at that point to put the estimate together. So it was very complex. And the estimate, when it finally was done, was like three quarters of a million dollars. It was huge. It would have made a major difference to the company. So we submitted the bid. And about a week later, I called the buyer up to get some feedback and got no response. 
Tried again, tried again, tried again, no response. So my enthusiasm obviously waned that we were probably not going to get the project. And so I just went about again, calling on different people. Weeks turned into a month, turned into two months, actually three months. And about three months later, another buyer at that company called me up and said, hey, David, I want to talk to you about the pathology book bid that you guys did. Come in and see me about it. So I was a little bit optimistic. I'm like, wow, okay, this is great. I go back over. I sit down with her. And she looks a little embarrassed. And I said, "Um, yeah, so what's happening? And she said, David, I don't know how to tell you this, but that pathology book project that you guys estimated on was not a real project. I don't know why he gave it to you and wasted your company's time and effort. It kind of took me a second for that to settle in. I I remember saying to her, so we did the bid for nothing? And of course, I don't even know what she said. Even if she did answer, I don't remember. But I recall feeling taken advantage of, small, humiliated in that moment. But in that moment, something inside me changed, and I didn't even notice it. Unconsciously, this happens to all of us in every event of our lives. Just sit with one. Looking back over the years that followed, I could see how cynical I had become and untrusting of others. It led my false self to behave in ways that were judgmental and even passive-aggressive at times. The fire of that experience would eventually purify and preserve me. It was years later, though. Thanks to God's grace, and it's always God's grace, right? I would be able to see that that version of myself, that you that Jesus was talking about, that was not loving of God, my neighbors, or myself. It separated me from who I really was. It wasn't because I was a broken person or unworthy, but because of a life experience that clouded me, clouded my true self. So I was able to uncritically and lovingly observe it, let it go, dismember it, that cynical part that was putting that stumbling block before my innocent child inside. Internally, it was othering me. It was othering myself from myself and others in my life. I was able to repent or change my mind about the event, the person, and the impact it had unconsciously on my life. So what is the good news? It's knowing intellectually and feeling here, feeling that we're all special and already chosen by God from the very beginning. Sometimes in this world, though, we'll be chosen and sometimes we'll be excluded. That's the pain of the human condition and the way that our culture is constructed. But we have the chance to repent, to change our minds about this internal narrative for both others and especially ourselves. Do you know what else is good news? That as special chosen, meant to be gifts of God 
that we do have a choice to react to those false parts of us that lead us to feeling othered from others and the illusion that God has othered us too. In that place, we can consciously choose heaven in this moment. Early on in my spiritual journey, I attended a weekend-long workshop that was given by Rabbi Rami Shapiro. And he was teaching us about what is known as the perennial tradition, which is a focus on the shared understandings of the world's religions. He concluded that weekend workshop with this. And lean in with me on this. Will you engage this moment with kindness or with cruelty? With love or with fear? With generosity or scarcity? With a joyous heart or an embittered one? This is your choice, and no one can make it for you. If you choose kindness, love, generosity, and joy, then you will discover in that choice the kingdom of God, heaven, nirvana, this worldly salvation. If you choose cruelty, fear, scarcity, and bitterness, then you will discover in that choice the hellish states of which so many religions speak. These are not ontological realities tucked away somewhere in space. These are existential realities playing out in our own mind. Heaven and health are both inside you. It is your choice that determines where you will reside. In 1933, American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr wrote this prayer that many of us know. It's called the Serenity Prayer. And it goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. It's helped many, many people. But I'd like to close our time this morning with a slightly altered version of this prayer offered to us by the Reverend Tracy Dawson. God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know it's me. Amen.